0: NBC. What is NBA up everybody, this is Jim Mylock and you're listening to Pod of Fame, the podcast where we break down the careers of former athletes and decide whether or not you should get a call to the hall. On today's podcast, we are not talking about any particular player. Instead, what I'm going to do is talk about my trip last weekend to Cooperstown, the Baseball Hall of Fame. Um, so this may be shocking to some of you and I, I hope, I hope no one's like, this guy's a fraud. He's talking about the hall of fame all the time. I've never been to Cooperstown before last weekend. I'd never been to the baseball hall of fame before last weekend, somewhere I've always, as you could imagine, have wanted to go. Um, but I live in Chicago as most of, you know, and Cooperstown's kind of hard to get to, um, you know, it's in, it's in upstate New York. Um, you can't fly really into Cooperstown unless you're probably very wealthy and have a private plane. I do not have that. I'm not very wealthy, um, so to get there, it's it's kind of a trek car by car. I think it's like nine or ten hours. Um, you know, the closest airports really it's like Albany, New York, and I don't have many occasions. And to be honest, I've never had an occasion to go to Albany, New York before, so it's never like I could tack it into a trip. But it worked out this time. Uh, I was in Vermont for a wedding and then instead of going right home, drove to Cooperstown to check it out before um, flying back to Chicago out of Albany. So I'd never been before. um, Always wanted to. I always said, again, I, I would maybe go the next time a Chicago Cub got elected that I, you know, grew up watching as I'm a Cubs fan. And to this day, no Cub I've watched and I was actually talking to my fiance about I don't know when <laughs> when that day is going to come. Cubs have gotten in while I've been alive, you know whether it be Ryan Sandberg, um, Ron Santo, uh, Andre Dawson, but I, I didn't really grow up I didn't grow up watching those guys. Um, you know Mark Grace not going to get in. Uh, Sammy Sosa we all know he's not in, uh, and then from my 2016 Cubs who who knows about these guys? I don't think any of them have really you know John Lester's probably the closest um but I think he'll probably go in as a red sock to be honest but regardless me waiting for the cubs to eventually get in or a cub player to get in might have taken me a very long time to get there so saw the opportunity with the Vermont wedding I went and it was it it actually my expectations were pretty high and it blew my expectations out of the water I I loved it uh, the, the big mistake I made was I looked online and you know, how, how long does it take to go through Cooperstown? How long do you need in the museum? Uh, I read two to three hours and, you know, I've seen pictures of the building, of course, like, okay, it's, you know, there's the plaques and there's some exhibits that, that sounds about right. And the reason I had to time it up correctly is cause I was, you know, we, I went on a Monday was flying out of Albany. So we, you know, we had to drive from Cooperstown to Albany that same day. We had to make sure we didn't miss our flight home. Um, so I was like, okay, two or three hours. I know, I know myself. I obviously I love this stuff. I'll probably need a little more time. Maybe four hours will be plenty of time. Well, um, I will tell you, we were there for about five and a half hours, and we were rushing um, at the end to get out. I I definitely didn't see everything I wanted to. I was definitely doing a lot more skimming than in you know in depth reading at some of the area in some of the areas. And my goal was to read every single plaque. And I got, pretty, I got pretty far. I think I got to about the 1980s inductees where we were like, hey, we're running out of time. We got to start really just looking at the wall, picking out a few, and then going to the next. Uh, so five and a half hours was not nearly enough time for me. You know, it opens at nine. I believe it closes at five. I think next time it would have to be a two-day trip. Or I will have to get there the second it opens and stay until you know someone's kicking me out because there's that much to see. I will say from the outside it doesn't look that big, so when I got there I was like, okay, this will be fine. Maybe we're gonna finish too early. I can you know go look at some exhibits a second time. That was not even close to being the case. There's three floors. Each floor deserves two to three hours. Um, and again, I I got a lot of the trip. I learned a lot. Uh, even for me, there was a lot of things I picked up, and even the design of the museum. I didn't know exactly what to expect outside of you know, the plaque area, which I'd seen plenty of pictures of, and you know knew what a bunch of people's plaques looked like. But still, um, a lot of things surprised me. But in general, could not recommend it more. If you've never been, um, you ha- you gotta go. I regret taking this long to get there. Um, I would, I should have built a trip a long time ago around this just specifically to go to Cooperstown and spend a couple days there, but I know I will be back, which is why it was easy for me at the end of the day to, to make sure I made my plane and leave early, um, to give up me plenty of time to get back because I know I'll be back. Um, it, it was that cool. And again, if you listen to this podcast and you like baseball and you've never been, I can say with a hundred percent certainty, you, you, you will love it just as much as I did. Uh, so what I'm going to do in the podcast today, um, I'm going to talk about five areas of the Hall of Fame that either surprised me or I just found kind of interesting that I want to talk a little mo- more about today. So that's all we're doing today. Um, if you want our normal podcast, again, we'll have a normal one next Monday. Um, but I, I really, I felt like I couldn't go to the Hall of Fame and not talk about it um, on a podcast that really surrounds itself around the Hall of Fame. And and as you probably heard me say on this podcast before, the three Hall of Fames, Cooperstown is by far my favorite. I feel like it has the most mystique. I feel like it is the hardest by far to get into, um which makes it uh, and, and you know b- baseball has the most history as well, right? Uh, it's been around the longest out of football and basketball, the, the two other sports I cover on this podcast. Uh so it has the most history. Um I feel like it again, it's no longer America's pastime, America's pastime, but for a very long time it was, which makes it I don't know, it Like I want to go to Cooperstown, like the Fourth of July or some American. It just it felt very, it felt very American in there. It's America's pastime. They tie it to America's history, and even Cooperstown, the city as a whole. If you've never been to Cooperstown, even if you don't like baseball, Cooperstown is a beautiful town that I barely got to explore. But the whole, you know, the whole Main Street where Cooperstown lies on, there's just baseball store after baseball store. You know, there's like a Shoeless Joe Jackson baseball store. Which is always you know ironic being there. Um, but there's ice c- ice cream parlors everywhere. Uh, there's it seems like there's bars everywhere, little restaurants. I went to the Cooperstown diner for breakfast, which was just an absolute joint. Maybe you can fit like 18 people in there. There's one server, one cook. They did an excellent job. after that, didn't have enough food, knowing me I needed more across the street to this bakery that actually one of our followers on Twitter recommended while I was at the diner, so thank you. Um, I forgot who exactly tweeted at me about it, but there's bakery right across the street. I wanted everything. They had some sort of walnut cinnamon roll, which might be one of the best pieces of bakery I've eaten this the year, which is saying a lot after my trip to Africa and all the bakeries I had there. So had that, got to the Hall of Fame around 10. And then again, I was pushing it. We were leaving um, around 3.30 to to make sure we got back to Albany um, to, to catch my flight. So... Cooperstown couldn't recommend it enough today. Five areas I'm going to dive a little deeper into, um, and that will be the pod. So if you want to listen, you know, stay on. I, I think it's a really fun pod ahead of us. If you only are here for my normal content, this will not be it. So again, check in next Monday. We'll have a normal show for you. So with that, let's go to those five main areas I want to dive into. Okay, so the five areas I want to dive into just around the hall, things I found interesting, things that surprised me, et cetera. Um, no particular order. I'm not ranking these by anything. I just made a list, and these were the five things I wanted to call it. Number one, and <laughs> maybe not the best place to start when you're talking about the Hall of Fame because I know this is a very sensitive subject to many, especially the many that probably listen that care about this, steroid users in the hall. So. Obviously, I'm not gonna get too much here. I've I've done a Barry Bonds episode. I've done a Sammy Sosa episode. Um, I made it pretty clear on my pods where my stance is. Uh, you know, if if they, you know, were using steroids before Major League really cracked down on it um, in the early, you know, 2000s, 2003, 2004, they really cracked down on it. I don't hold it against them as much as people who. You know, later in the 2000s or, or today, that know the rules, know they can't do that, um, are going to get suspended if they get caught, and are still, you know, using, getting caught, etc. cetera. Today, Robinson Cano, I look a lot differently than a, a Barry Bonds, a Sammy Sosa, um, a Gary Sheffield. That's just that's just me. Uh, again, if you think anyone that used it shouldn't be in, that's you. That's fine. Um, I completely respect that. I totally get the point of view. I'm just saying I've talked to enough baseball writers, uh, enough people that vote, enough people around the game where they have kind of influenced me, a lot of them that vote for stereo users on that stance. And and, I, and, and I've been sold on it. I'll tell you that. Because I didn't know where I was years ago, and, and I've been sold over the years on that idea. So that's where I stand today. Anyway, we know they're not in, um, or the ones we, the famous ones, the Bonds, Maguire, Sosas, Clemens. Um, We know that they don't have plaques in the Hall of Fame. It's always like, well, how can you tell baseball history without these guys? Their their plaques aren't in there. And I've always agreed with that. Like, you need their plaque in there. However, I will say after being at the Baseball Hall of Fame, being in Cooperstown, those guys are everywhere in the Hall of Fame. They're just not, you know, they don't have a plaque. But the, you know, floors, so floor one is where the plaques are, but floor two and three are just baseball memorabilia. And Sosa's represented, uh, McGuire's represented, Barry Bonds's home run balls are in there, his bats are in there, Clemens' hats and uniforms. There's stuff's everywhere. Um, so when you're telling that, when you're talking about, I, I guess I, I, I then go like this whole like story. And again, this is kind of against my own point of view, but like you can't tell the baseball history without these guys. I agree with that completely. But it's not like the museum has banned every item they like, like they're in the hall of fame everywhere. Um, now they don't have like a few key players in baseball history that deserve it. Like Babe Ruth and Hank Aaron, they have like a, almost a mini section just for them. Um, you know, Barry Bonds, who's I think one of the top five baseball players of all time, Clemens, who's a top five pitcher of all time. They don't have sections dedicated to them. Maybe if, you know, they didn't take steroids and uh, they they, you know, they, they would, but they still are like, I'm walking around, I'm seeing, you know, again, Barry Bonds' uniform when he hit his 600th or 700th home run or his home run ball when he hit 700th or his bat he used on that season where he hit 73 home runs. That stuff's everywhere. So what I will say, I don't think I realized how much memorabilia there was of these players that are quote-unquote banned from the Hall of Fame, but they're still in the physical building. They're just not on the first floor. And maybe I'm stupid for not realizing that. And maybe everyone knows that except me. But I think that caught me a little off guard, just how much they were represented throughout the museum outside of, you know, having a plaque. And again, for the record, I do believe most of those guys should be in the Hall of Fame. Um, but but in terms of like, you go to the museum, you're still learning about Barry. You're still learning about Sammy, Maguire. Like they're still there. So I think that shocked me a little bit. And I was glad to see that because again, I do think they should get in. I think a lot of the top players in that era were using steroids, maybe some more obvious than others. And if you listen to my Barry Bonds episode, which I encourage you to, because it's one of my favorites, he had a whole hall of fame career before steroids probably even came into play. And that's pretty clear based on how skinny he was. He won three MVPs, all that good stuff. So Barry Bonds not being in, I think is the biggest crime. Uh, But anyway, not going to get into a stereo discussion here. I just want to say there are, like if you're someone that's like, I can't believe the Hall of Fame doesn't have stereo users in it. There's stuff's everywhere. They just don't have a plaque. Number two thing I want to talk about, the 1936 Baseball Hall of Fame class. Of course, this is the OG baseball class. Um, When Cooperstown, you know, started, these were the first five people elected when the first time was voted. So the first time... They had a vote. There was 226 ballots out there. um, And you needed 170 votes to get elected. They haven't changed that formula. You need 75% always, even back then. There was five people elected. And again, think of that first class, the backlog of all the people had played for the last, what, 60, 70 years or, or more in baseball history. They were all against each other. So this is the most stacked of stacked classes. So obviously you had to be one of the best of the best to get elected. And the best of the best were elected. Ty Cobb, Babe Ruth, Ernest Wagner, Christy Mathewson, and Walter Johnson were the first five elected into the Hall of Fame. And they have their own on floor one. They are in the middle. Like when you when you walk through the doors, they are straight ahead, and they have their own kind of like. It looks like there's light shining from the ceiling on it. It is like this like mecca of of baseball Hall of Fame. It's like these are the original guys. And again, I would say. Three of those five guys, maybe four of those five guys are in my top 10 to 12 baseball players of all time. I've never made a ranking, but I know Cobb and Ruth and Wagner all would be. Johnson's probably in there as well. Um, but I don't want to say that for matter of fact, i am never done a list. But anyway, these are still some of the best guys of all time. They were in that first class. What I want to call out on, and, and I'd heard this before, but I guess I just hadn't really thought about it. So they have these five plaques. And in the middle of it, of the middle of the plaques, because there's four surrounding, one is the guy who got the most votes that year. And I think a lot of people, including myself, usually if we're talking about the best baseball players of all time, Babe Ruth's usually one or two on, I would say 95, 99% of people's lists. Uh, Some people have Willie Mays one. Um, You know, some people will talk about uh, Barry Bonds as one. Uh, there, there's other people that get sprinkled in there, you know, Mickey, well, I don't think Mickey Mantle's number one, but I usually hear a combination of like Willie Mays or Babe Ruth, or maybe a pitcher, maybe Walter Johnson. I don't know. Wagner might be gets thrown there too sometimes, but those are some of the big names you get thrown around number one. However, number one in 1936, when they voted was not Babe Ruth. And I knew this, but for some reason it's sticking with me more now. It was Ty Cobb. Um, Ty Cobb got 98.2% of the votes that year. Um, Babe Ruth and Ornus Wagner both tied for second most votes with 95.1% of the vote. They got 215 votes each. Chrissy Matthewson got 90.7%. And Walter Johnson, believe it or not, only got 83.6%. Okay, but again, you be clear, like tri-speaker didn't get elected that year. Cy Young had to wait rogers hornsby had to wait eddie collins probably one of the second best second baseman of all time had to wait um a lot of people had to wait so being elected in the first year with that backlog is impressive in itself but ty cobb number one the thing that's shocking too is ty cobb had such a bad reputation like today if you don't get along with writers or you're seen as like i don't know a, a, a mean guy which ty cobb definitely had that reputation. That kind of hurts you, but that did not hurt Ty Cobb here at all. And again, he did better than Ruth and Wagner. And this gets down to me thinking, like, I do need to make my all-time list. And I I take the fact that Ty Cobb was was considered by more voters than anyone else the best player of baseball at that time. That stands out a lot to me. Uh, You know, I wasn't there. And all I can do is look at the numbers, right? And, and Bade Root's numbers are insane. And, you know, he, he was a pitcher first. He was an excellent pitcher. And then he's, you know, a slugger hitting more home runs than entire teams. And um, I, I don't know, like, to me, it seems like a no brainer number one. But this makes me want to think about a little more and think about Ty Cobb and think about Wagner more. Um, because this was the baseball voters at the time, a lot of them had seen all these guys probably play at that time. And they were there and we weren't and they're picking Cobb number one and Wagner is on par with Ruth. Um, so it gives me pause. It makes me want to go back and look. And I will say like a- another thing about this whole, like Babe Ruth's always number one or two on my, on people's list, including my own. Right. I've always thought that, but when I was on sabbatical and I, I think I talked about this when I was, when I was in Africa all those weeks I read all those books and I talked about this the other week and I read a book that really chronicled like early baseball it it went back um and interviewed players like in the 50s and 60s that had played in like the early 1900s they had played in um you know the the 1920s 30s they had seen all this and one of the main themes I got from that book was that everyone didn't consider Babe Ruth the best player. Um, a lot of people said that Wagner was the best player they'd ever seen. Um, a lot of people kind of said Cobb was right there with Ruth. Again, no one was bashing Ruth. Plenty of people were talking great about Ruth. But I will say um, a lot of people put Wagner or Cobb at the top of their list. And these were the players that, again, played against them, played at the same time. I kind of trust that a lot compared to just when I look at Baseball Reference. I can look at how dominant he was and all of that, and maybe that's all that should matter. But at the same time, work, like against your contemporaries, what they thought. I think that matters a lot. In in and, and again, the book I had to look it up because I, I have terrible memory at this. The book's called *The Glory of Their Times* by Lawrence S. Ritter. It's one of the most famous baseball books of all time. I finally read it. Highly recommend it. But again, between reading that book. And hearing a lot of players said Cobb or Wagner is the best player they had ever seen at that point in 1960 um, or whenever, when they got interviewed. And then, you know, Ty Cobb giving the most votes. That makes me reconsider when I think the top, you know, 10 or so baseball players of all time, where Cobb should be, where Wagner should be, and where Ruth should really be. So I want to leave it there. Again, all of those guys, all-time greats, but interesting that Cobb goes number one in that first class. All right. So number three, this is kind of funny, but it's something that caught me off guard. It was how much I enjoyed the plaques of umpires in Cooperstown. So I've had listeners ask me, like, can you do an umpire episode? You know, I don't, (laughs) I still don't know enough of what gets you in as an umpire and what prevents you. Like, I know we all complain about Angel Hernandez. I would never put him in the hall of fame, even though he's, you know, been a ump for over 30 years, I believe. But it seems like, you know, longevity, like how long you're an ump matters a lot and maybe how well you're liked. But, you know, I was reading these plaques. There's 10 umps in the, in the hall of fame today. And their plaques were some of my favorites to read. Um, because again, it's just, it's, uh, it seems more just like, uh, you know, Let me read a couple. You can kind of get what I'm saying. So, uh, here's a one of the plaques I took a picture of Albert Joseph Barlick. He was a National League ump from 1940 to 1971. This is what his plaque says: Earned respect of peers and players alike with booming calls, clear and decisive hand signals, knowledge of the rules. I, I mean, I, I feel like you should probably know the rules. Um, proficiency on balls and strikes. Ability to anticipate and then handle rough situations and unceasing hustle. Professional umpire for five decades and at age 25, one of the youngest to reach the majors where he worked 27 full seasons. So, okay. Things like youngest to reach the majors. That's great. Work 27 seasons. That's great. Respected by peers, but like great hand signals. Um, you know, he, he was loud. He had uh, he knew the rules. Like, <laughs> I don't know. To me, like, those seem very, like, one person's opinion. Like, I don't know. I've never looked at umps and be like, he has really great hand signals. He's nice and loud. I know there's umps. I'm like, where is their strike zone? I I don't get it. I know what bad umps look like, but outside of years served, I don't really know how I would pick out a Hall of Famer when there's only, think about it. Think how long baseball has been around. There's only 10 in the Hall of Fame. What's a Hall of Fame ump and what's not? That'd be very hard for me to decide. I don't think I'd be comfortable ever doing an episode, but I want to read one more. This was, I think, my favorite. Uh, John, I'm sorry if I butchered this. um, John Bertrand Conlon. His nickname was Jocko. I can do that better. He was a National League ump from 1941 to 1965. Here was his plaque. He had a sunny disposition, and he is smiling on the plaque. I want to say that. So sunny disposition, accuracy, and hustle. Earned him ratings as standout umpire and he won respective players and managers with his fairness. He worked um on four NL Pennant playoffs. He's chosen for six World Series and six All-Star games. So um, you know, this one, he, he you know, he was a good ump because they made him a World Series ump, an all-star ump, in the pennant. Like, but again, his sunny disposition, that's what they lead with. So was this guy just like super friendly all the time? So everyone liked him, and that's why he wasn't even, Maybe that's what you got to be is an um, umps don't seem like the most friendly guys. Maybe this was just one of the most friendly umps. They picked him for everything because he was a nice guy. He wasn't throwing everyone out. He was, he was fair apparently. And, and that earned him respect because he wasn't a, an asshole or a grump. Like I think a lot of umps seem to be. So umpire uh, plaques did not think I was going to spend much time on that. I really enjoyed searching them all on. I think I read all 10, um, had a blast doing that. So that, that was number three. Number four uh, has to do with defense. So when I'm doing my pods, we get, we're going to focus on offense more than defense. Just that's how it, that's how it works. Um, the offensive numbers, we hang our hats on more. We all get the offensive numbers more. They tell, I think, a more complete story of how good a player was. And then defensive metrics are just... And I've talked about this in this pod so many times. They're getting better, but I don't think they always tell the complete story. Like if someone has low air count, I think a lot of times that means that player is really good on defense. But also maybe that means that player doesn't take as many chances as another player would take. Maybe they're a shortstop that's slower doesn't get to as many balls. There's not as many opportunities to make an air. So maybe that's why the air count. Or, you know, there's the, there's, there's fielding percentage, but again, that ties into that again, how many balls they actually take a chance on. There's things like assists and putouts, but that has to do with opportunities as well. I don't know. I, I've always had struggle. Like I've always struggled telling that defensive story without golden gloves. But again, sometimes that's a popularity concept. It's not perfect. So anyway, a lot of times it's a lot of eye tests and for players, I grew up watching like Scott Rowland, I can do the eye test, but for people that played, you know, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, or any time between, you know, before 1996 or seven, when I first started to really understand baseball, it's hard for me to be like, without listening to people that maybe saw them play or just reading enough to really understand what caliber of a fielder they were. Because it's, it's very hard sometimes with the statistics we have at our hand. So what I was surprised by, but I was happy with, was how how a lot of the plaques on floor one, when they were talking about the Hall of Famers, how much they talked about defense. But it was sometimes really funny stuff. Other times it was like, uh, you know, the actual numbers. Like sometimes it'd be like, he had a strong arm. He could cover all, all the ground out there. Or one of them, I think, was like, he was one of the top two first baseman fielders of the last 30 years. Like something really specific. Like, I don't know how they're making this um, you know, distinguishing it, but it was funny stuff, but then they throw stuff out, like, you know, led the, led the short stops and assists five years in a row, um, led the league in put outs four years in a row, outfield assists six years in a row, fielding percentage, like they would list it all. Um, maybe even before home runs, RBIs hits, all that good stuff, even for players that were good hitters. So I don't think that's happening as much in. Recent plaques being created, but definitely the early ones, a little more emphasis on defense, which I think we've started to go away from a little bit. I, I think defense still matters, but at the end of the day, hitting for position players is what I think we look at and what's going to get you in the Hall of Fame more often than not than being one of the best defenders of all time. Um, unless you're like an Ozzy Smith, right? Uh, or a Brooks Robinson, who again, was a better hitter than some people remember. I took a picture of one of them that I thought was funny, Uh, George Kell, which I'm sure not many of you maybe even know who that was, but he was one of the better third basemen in the 40s and 50s. I played for a variety of teams in the AL. I think most people probably think of him as a Tiger or a Red Sox player. Um, But this was his plaque. He was a good defender. Let me just put it out there. Premier AL third baseman of 40s and 50s. Solid hitter and sure handed fielder with strong accurate arm. He batted over 309 times, leading league with 343 batting average in 1949. Led AL third baseman in fielding percentage, assists four times, and putouts. Um, led double plays, led league in double plays twice. So I would say over half of this plaque is strictly around defense. But as you can see, the guy was also a really good hitter. I mean, he, he was, he batted over 309, nine different times. So there was other hiss, hitting statistics. I think you have thrown here, but it really focused on his defense. Um, and I thought that was cool. And I like that. And I hope, hope we do that more. And again, if today's plaques are doing that still a lot, and I just didn't see it again, I did have to rush through the nineties inductees through the end. So I might Google some of these plaques and read through them. Maybe I'm wrong here. Uh, but the ones I did skim through, it seemed like it was a lot more emphasized on hitting and not as much on the fielding. Um, So I want to call that out. The final thing, um, number five, and this is going to be pretty obvious, but it just, I guess going to Cooperstown reinforced it. It's just how damn good you have to be to get into the baseball hall of fame. Um If you're listening to this pod, you know, the Basketball Hall of Fame, pretty easy to get in. I can make a case for pretty much anyone that was above average to get in the Hall of Fame. The Football Hall of Fame, I think does a really good job. Um, I think they let a lot of people in. I think there's a lot of great players on the outside that maybe should be in, but I think they make it pretty tough to get in, but they still allow enough people in um, where I don't feel like there's some people that 100% should be in, but they're not. And then baseball is by far the toughest. And I think it's still my favorite. I think it should be that tough. Uh, I don't know if I'm a small hall or a large hall. I don't think I'm either of those guys. I think I'm like a medium, medium hall. It's not a nice, no one says that, but I'm kind of in the middle, but I do love how baseball hard, it is so hard to get into the baseball hall of fame and going there and seeing the plaques and seeing how long it took some players in the past to get in, I think just showed me like how, how serious it should always be taking the voting. And again, all the voters I talk to take it so seriously, which I appreciate so much, even though they've been voting for some of them for years and years, they still take it so seriously Like the Jason Starks of the world, um like they take it so seriously. And I appreciate because it is such a high honor to get in. You just don't end up in the baseball hall of fame. Um, and, and again, it really hit me when I was looking at plaques, and I was like, well, why is this guy grouped with this guy? They play in different eras." I'm like, oh, wait, it took a really long time for this guy to get in. Like, you know, Ralph Kiner. Um, this guy led the league in home runs seven straight years. He came in, led the league in home runs for seven straight years, one of the best home run hitters in MLB history. He didn't get in until 1975 on his 13th try. It took Ralph Kiner 13 tries to get into the Hall of Fame. Or someone like um, Jimmy Fox, who was on the ballot for seven years before he got in 1951. And he only got 79% of the vote that year. He barely got in on his seventh year in 1951. Jimmy Fox has three MVPs, a triple crown, 534 home runs, just under 2,000 RBIs. Jimmy Fox, seven years on the ballot, got in with 79% of the vote in 1951. Barely got in. Eddie Collins, possibly the best second baseman of all time, took him four years to get in, 77.7% of the vote. So he barely got in that fourth year, almost took a fifth year. Again, one of the best second basemen of all time. Yogi Berra wasn't a first ballot Hall of Famer. It took him two tries, but he was not a first ballot Hall of Famer. Yogi Bear. Eddie Matthews was another one. Took him five years to get in. Got in 1978. He hit 512 runs when the 500 home run club was like the club. Five years to get in. So, again, I, I, I've I always known Cooper Sounds the hardest. I, you know, some of these players I talk about on the podcast all the time. I'm like, how are they not in? And I say i them, like, how can this guy not be in? You know, I get it. Because it's a very select group of, of players and umps, you know, and managers that are in the hall of fame today. Like you have to be the best of the best of the best. And whenever I'm doing my podcasts and I'm talking, like, I'll be like, I can't believe this guy's not in, you know, you do have to nitpick at these players. Like I'll nitpick. And I'm like, yeah, well that's nitpicking. You do have to nitpick when you're talking about the baseball hall of fame, because these are some of the best players. And yes, There are players that have got in that maybe shouldn't have gone in, but a majority of them, they really did, like they either had to wait a little bit, even maybe when they shouldn't have, or if you're getting elected on the first ballot, you should be one of the best players the game's ever seen and and should be an absolute no-brainer. And again, it's never perfect. It's never going to be perfect. Some voters um, hold things against players when they shouldn't. Some players like, or some voters like, won't for for a player on their first year, which is super weird. Like, if it's Tony Gwynn trying to get in, you vote for Tony Gwynn on the first ballot. If it's Derek Jeter, you vote for Derek Jeter. Um, I think Derek Jeter's only one guy, but still, uh, some of these others like Cal Ripken and Tony Gwynn. I think there's still like maybe 17, 18 people that didn't think they were a Hall of Famer of the first ballot. And I know if you go back, it's even more. So it's gotten better, I think. But all I'm trying to say here is. As I, it's always good to get a reminder, the Baseball Hall of Fame, Cooperstown, it is a super exclusive club. You need to be one of the best to be in. And if I talk about a player and I don't think they should be in, that doesn't mean they weren't a great player. It just means, you know, being in the Hall of Fame, even, even seeing how long it took some of the other guys, like, you, they shouldn't take it hard. Like, if I don't think you should be in the Hall of Fame, it probably means you were still a really great, player if we're talking about you you're an all-time great so um that was my one of my biggest takeaways um which sounds silly because it's so simple but sometimes the simple things are, are actually the biggest takeaways the most important things i've learned that over over my life so that's my fifth last thing before i get you out of here one funny thing that my fiance kept cracking up about that um i didn't really have a place to mention it here but uh i will again, we enjoyed, I think the plaque section the most just, and I, I knew going in, I was because each plaque is different and they don't follow any rhyme or reason what's written about them. And, uh, anyway, Harlem Killibrew, it, it said like the first line, it was like how muscular he was. Like he was a muscular slugger. And, uh, I will say by no means was any other plaque. Did anyone talk about someone's physique, 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 except him. He was the only one. Um, I've never seen a picture of Harum's, uh, Kilbrew's biceps. I, I don't know how muscular he was. I know he was a big guy. I know he hit a ton of home runs. I, I believe off the top of my head, 573. I think like in the early days of me following baseball, I ingrained every home run stat into my head. So I believe he's 573. Um, but she just got a kick out of him saying he was muscular. She was like, did he ask for that? Did he know the guy who wrote the plaque really well to write it. Um, I don't know if I was as intrigued by it as she was, but it did get me thinking like how funny it was and how he probably did ask because that is really random to write since no one else, you know, they didn't talk about Rookie Henderson's calves or um, anyone else's biceps. So thought that was funny. Wanted to throw it in there because she got such a kick out of it. Um, if anyone knows, feel free to tweet at me or uh, email me because... We thought that was super funny. Maybe it was Killbrew's like best friend that was a writer or something. I don't know. Or he just bribed someone. Who knows? I don't want to make up stories, but we thought that was funny. So that's all I have today. Again, could not recommend it enough. Give yourself enough time if you go. Um, go to Cooperstown Diner before for breakfast. Go across the street for additional bakery. And I would say spend a night there. Uh, whenever, whenever I go back, i will definitely spend a night there. Enjoy the town take your time there is so much to see I mean you'll be walking around the corner there's be this little tiny exhibit on the corner it'll be like oh yeah that's uh that's Maris's 61st home run ball like what like it's right next to a fire extinguisher like what can you put like a light on this or like what if I missed that or be like this is the bat that Hank Aaron used to hit his 700 home run like why is that such an afterthought but the thing is the Baseball Hall of Fame has, so, like, again, so much history. You can't highlight everything with some individual shrine because there's 600 home run balls, 500 home run balls, a perfect game ball, a mitt Willie Mays used to make the catch. It's just sitting with two other mitts. I was like, that's the mitt. That's, like, one of the most famous pictures in MLB history. And it's just a, among a couple other mitts. I just, every turner I court, I that's why I felt, that's why I took so much time. I was like, I don't want to miss anything, but I'm sure I missed a ton. So take your time when you go back. Could not have had more fun. That's all we have for today. If you don't already, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, leave us a rating review. We love them. Follow us on Twitter at Pot of Fame. Um, and we will talk to you next Monday. Have a great week. And the world's gonna know your name, yeah. Cause you're.